Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blowout of wicked proportions. An accidental company. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the At TSN Hockey Bobcast for Friday, January 26th. 2018. Well, this would be season two. What is it? Episode 10. And hey, guess what? Well, here's what. This episode of the Bobcast is brought to you by Budweiser's limited edition gold sink lights. Get yours now at Budweiser.ca and bring it home. Must be legal drinking age. Yes, sirree, Bob. That's what you call an ad. A sponsor. A Bobcast first. So, uh, Thanks to the good folks at Bud for jumping on board for this epi, as Jacob and Ollie from On the Bench might say. Um, How was my ad read, by the way? I've got to start working on that, I guess. I hope it was good. Uh, If not, I may have to bring in Rod Smith to voice it. If Rod's not available, perhaps I could get Rod Smith Baby from the James Duffy's Rubber Boots podcast. I mean, who doesn't love them Some Rod Smith Baby? Now, it's funny, when I, when I first started listening to podcasts, and people who've listened to the Bobcast know this, I was kind of inspired by Bill Burr's Monday morning podcast, and it always cracked me up when he would read the ads on his podcast, especially Zip Recruiter, and uh, he used to sing Me Undies, uh, the ad for Me Undies, he'd sing that, it was hilarious stuff, I don't think we'll, uh, I'll take too much uh, poetic license with ad reads on the Bobcast. Um, if there's any more of them to come, but that uh, was always good stuff on Bill Burr. So anyways, it's uh, congratulations to everybody who made it to the All-Star break, including me. Yay, All-Star break. Uh, so I guess that makes this the All-Star weekend edition of the Bobcast, although I should point out not going to Tampa for the All-Star, and, and part of me wishes that I was. I mean, this has been a hellacious winter in southern Ontario. It's been so cold and crappy and... I could use a little warmth in uh, Tampa sunshine. And, and I just finished a, like an eight or nine day stretch where I've been in total scramble mode the whole time. Um, way, way, way too much work. Uh, zero downtime. Now, I'm not complaining. I'm just noting that I always find it's never a good thing when you feel like your job is completely running you instead of you running the job. There's this feeling of helplessness where you're just kind of careening from thing to thing and th- Things are falling through the cracks and you've had no time to do any of the things you normally would do. Um, And I usually go through this process when I'm doing mid-season draft rankings. Yes, Um, this morning, as a matter of fact, we just did the the TSN uh, mid-season NHL draft rankings for 2018. Half-hour show with James Duthie. It's on tsn.ca. It's on all our TSN channels at some point in time today. Maybe even the Ocho. Um, so anyways, I always find after I finish the world junior, I'm running a little, uh, empty on the tank and then we get into the rankings and it's such a labor intensive job, literally days and days and days of interviewing scouts, crunching numbers. It's really time consuming. You, you throw in, I did the NHL coaches poll this week, did a leaf game. I was in NBC for the Leafs in Chicago game. Um, the, uh, 
I was at the CHL Prospects game last night, the draft ranking show, and now the the Bobcast. As I say, not complaining, just duly noting that I, I can't wait to finish this week work week off with this Bobcast. And as soon as I'm done, I'm off to Kitchener to see the Kitchener Rangers and my granddaughter, and not necessarily in that order. And then this weekend, I plan on totally vegging out at home on Saturday and Sunday. And I'm going to try not to look at my phone. I'm going to try to stay off Twitter. I'm going to try to really shut it down and pull a blanket over my head and do not much of anything. And this would normally be the kind of weekend where I would love nothing more than to crack open two, three, four bottles of really good wine and really get after it. But uh, I should point out, I am now, this would be day 20 of me being on dry island. Maybe that's why I feel like my life has been careening out of control for the last week because I haven't had anything to settle me down a little. Um, But in any case, I am going to have to find my chill organically and without the assistance of any alcohol. Dry island for me is going to the end of February. So um, I'm not even sure if I'll watch the All-Star festivities or not this weekend. I mean, I should. I really should. It's it's kind of my job, but then again, it's not. Um, because if it really were my job, I'd be there in Tampa. Um, and I, I should point out, I'm basically done with the All-Star Game. Now, this is not an All-Star Game rant. Let's make that perfectly clear. I want to state up front, the All-Star Weekend is an absolute blast if you're in the city where it's being held. The, the folks in Tampa will have the best time ever. And, and the actual game itself, the All-Star game, has actually been a lot better the last couple of years since they went to the three-on-three format. It was, it was death before that, just, just dreadful. But the NHL did a really nice job of reinvigorating the actual game. But the All-Star weekend itself is a fantastic collection of parties and, you know, the skills competition is what it is. But... Um, it's just not on my list of things that I'm either A, interested in or have any desire to, to be a part of. And, and that's because, as I just chronicled earlier, I get so busy with the World Junior Championships on top of all my NHL stuff. And then I get so busy with the draft ranking stuff at this time of the year. So, so January is like hell month, quite aside, and, and just trying to stay on top of the news and everything else that goes along with. So somewhere along the line in the last five, six years, I just decided on my own to enter an all-star free zone. And no disrespect to the game or the weekend, but I no longer do all-star at all. I don't worry about who's invited. I don't know who's there, who's not. I don't care. There's no such thing as an all-star game snub to me because I just don't. It, does, it doesn't exist for me anymore. I don't really care that they've got a new skills competition. It's great that they do, um, and I'm glad they're continuing to evolve and good for the NHL and good for everybody that loves it. But for me, it doesn't exist, and I'm quite okay with that. Now, let's get to some hockey talk, real hockey talk. And my God, there is so much to talk about. Um, as I said, it's been a crazy work week. Uh, the TSN draft rankings are out on tsn.ca, and also, um, for both uh, viewers worldwide, non-geolocked, uh, you can go to tsn.ca anytime uh, as of right now, and you can see the entire 30-minute show that I did with James Duthie and Craig Button uh, this morning. So by all means, go. And we are going to talk draft because I've got some questions from listeners where we will talk about the draft, um, and I'll go through uh, some of the, the, the first-round ratings. Um, there was also... Uh, uh, another event this week, and that was the uh, TSN midseason NHL coaches poll. 
and I uh, thought I'd give that just a, a, a quick bit of attention. You can also go to tsn.ca to see the stories on that and the, uh, the results. But I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that for the first time I can ever remember since I started doing this, um, all 31 coaches, well, all the coaches responded. Of course, it's the first time 31 coaches have responded because it's the first time we've had 31 coaches because of uh, the, uh, the expansion Vegas Knights. But usually it's like 25, 28. I think the most I've ever had is 29. There's always usually one or two guys that are busy or feeling some owner breathing down their neck or deciding that I'm a pain in the ass and they just don't want to answer my, que- my text message to them. Um, but it was really impressive that all 31 guys took the time to answer a bunch of questions about midseason award winners and what have you. I've been doing this midseason all-star thing for a long time, coaches poll at the all-star break for a long time. I can remember doing it when I was at the Toronto Star in the early to mid-1990s. And I, I jokingly told the coaches when I sent them the text asking them to, uh, to, to send me answer these following questions. I said, you are permitted to do what Brian Sutter, when he coached the Boston Bruins, did to me in the 1990s when he, uh, he, he wrote on the sheet. Because in the old days, you couldn't text message or even email. Um, things were done by fax, F-A-X, the fax. So um, I got a fax from Brian Sutter, and you would say to the coaches, okay, here's the deal. We need uh, top three guys at each award, and you're not allowed to vote for your own guys. So Brian Sutter, being Brian Sutter, I love the Sutters, by the way, um, he sent one back and coaching the Boston Bruins, and where I said you can't vote for your own players, the first name mentioned for every award that was there was a Boston Bruin player. But then he answered, he put number two, number three, and number four. Now, he's only asked for three guys. So this was his clever, fun way of saying, I'm voting for all my guys first, but I'm going to give you exactly what you asked for, which is number two, number three, and number four are really number one and number two and number three by the time you edit out my Boston Bruin guys. But for the PS de resistance, in a black, uh, what I presume was a black magic marker because it was in very bold, heavy print right across the top of the page that was faxed to me, it said, go f*** yourself, Bob. So I think part of the reason I got such a great response from the coaches this time was because I said, if you guys want to take a Brian Sutter option here and tell me to go f*** myself, I'm perfectly willing to do that. But you should know that in order to do that, you have to answer all the questions. But in any case, thanks to the 31 uh, GMs. And here's a, a quick rundown of the results. Best player on the coach's poll was actually two players. It was a dead heat. Tampa's Nikita Kucherov got 14 votes, but so did Nathan McKinnon of the Colorado Avalanche. That's interesting because Kucherov really dominated the, the first quarter of the season. Uh, McKinnon has really dominated sort of the second quarter of the season. Uh, together, I guess you could say in the first half of the season, they've been equally great. So that's a, that's a coin toss there, Kucherov or McKinnon. Uh, Patrice Bergeron got two votes and Connor McDavid Got one. As for best goalie, again, Tampa front and center here. Andre Vasilevsky just blew everybody out of the water. 26 votes, two for Bobrovsky, two for Hellebuck, and two for, uh, sorry, one for Carey Price. Uh, Best defenseman, again, Tampa cleaning up. Victor Hedman, 17 votes. Drew Doughty, 12 votes. Brent Burns got one, surprising. 
Um, John Klingberg got one. Uh, a lot of P.K. Subban fans upset that he didn't get any love. And uh, a lot of Dallas fans thinking Klingberg should be uh, much closer to Hedman and Dowdy than uh, just getting the the, the one vote. Uh, best rookie, uh, this was a runaway. Fans in Vancouver are not happy about it either. Matthew Barzell of the New York Islanders, 24 votes. Uh, Brock Besser of the Vancouver Canucks got four, and Charlie McAvoy got three. Best coach, that was a runaway, Gerard Gallant. Um, basically, every coach uh, voted for Gerard Gallant, 30 of them. Uh, Gerard Gallant couldn't vote for himself, um, so uh, we'll call that de facto unanimous uh, selection as, as best coach. Um, interesting projections uh, on teams that would win the East and the West in the playoffs as well as the Stanley Cup. Uh, the coaches have Tampa Bay as the dominant Eastern team, 22 of 31 votes. Boston got eight, Pittsburgh got one. And on the Western Conference side, uh, Nashville led the way with 16 uh, projections to win the West uh, in the playoffs. And Vegas got seven, not surprising. Winnipeg got six. And Dallas, there's an interesting one, Dallas. Um, you know, the Leafs beat the Stars on Thursday night, but uh, Dallas has been playing some better hockey of late. It'll be interesting to see whether they can take that next step. As for Stanley Cup champion, uh, Tampa Bay, 19 votes. Nashville, five, Boston, four, and Pittsburgh, Vegas, and Winnipeg, one each. Wouldn't it be something if Vegas and uh, Vegas were to win the Stanley Cup? My God, um, they might win the President's Trophy. It's not far-fetched. Anyways, that's the result from the coaches' poll um, on that part of it. Now, I didn't just want to ask the Fluffy uh, who wins the awards, uh, who are the best teams. wanted to get into some media issues, but in sort of a superficial sort of way. So I asked the coaches about the dreaded coaches challenge. I asked the coaches two simple questions. It's really one question, just with a bit of a variation. Uh, video review coaches challenge for goaltender interference. Keep it, can it, or modify it. And I also asked video review coaches challenge for offside. Keep it, can it, or modify it. So as I said, all 31 responded, and this is a hot button topic, and we'll get deeper dive on that in a minute. But um, on the goalie interference video review challenges, 14 of the 31 coaches said keep it exactly the way it is. Three said get rid of it entirely. And 14 said modify it. In other words, 17 of the 31 coaches in the National Hockey League, you could say, are dissatisfied with the status quo, with the rule, the way it's currently constructed and executed. Now, on offside video review challenges, only two of 31 coaches said they would keep it exactly as is. Eight said they would get rid of it entirely, and 21 said they would modify it. So, remarkably, 29 of 31 NHL coaches have significant issues with the offside coaches challenge. Now, um, you know, I think it was last week, offside coaches challenge was the big... uh, was the big bugaboo. There were some really controversial ones that got people upset. And uh, so in terms of what those modifications could be, um, there were a whole variety of uh, suggestions from the coaches as to what they thought. Uh, The one coach said they thought the league should do away with the blue line camera and only use the normal TV feeds. And that if the linesmen or hockey operations in Toronto can't make a quick determination from those views, then just let the call on the ice stands. 
Um, but the, this coach that did suggest that said, if you are keeping the blue line camera, he would suggest the uh, using the leading edge of the blue line to determine onside and offside. That is, instead of determining when the puck crosses the blue line, just as soon as it hits the leading edge of the blue line, as long as there's some other body part on that player hanging outside the blue line, then it's, it's not offside. And uh, Daryl Sutter used to, when he was the coach of the LA Kings, that was what he always advocated. And there were a couple of other coaches that mentioned Daryl's rule about maybe using the leading edge and uh, trying to simplify things a little bit. Is the puck on the blue line? And is there some body part still outside the blue line? And a lot of the coaches said, get rid of the whole, is the skate on the ice or is off the ice? That's too hard to tell. Let's just boil this down to, um, is the plane broken? as opposed to uh, trying to go three-dimensional and figure out whether the skate is on or off the ice. Um, the, the coaches also want this taken more out of the referees and linesmen's hands and put in hockey operations in Toronto. They think there would be a greater degree of consistency. And, you know, I, I kind of thought that for the longest time, but I'm going to explain in a, a little bit why I'm not so confident that that would be the case and that there might be a whole set of unintended consequences by going to that route. As for the, uh, the goalie interview, goal, the goalie interview in uh, first day with my new mouth as for goalie interference, video review challenges. Um, the, the number one modification suggested simply was that the referees lose the right to review their work and that they just let hockey ops in Toronto. Now, this question was asked, of course, before the disallowed Connor McDavid goal in the Edmonton-Calgary game on uh, Thursday night. And I wonder if I go back and ask the coaches again the same question, whether they would still feel the same about giving Toronto more control. Uh, and the only reason I say that is because we really should take a, a bit of a deep dive here on that goal because I, I, as much frustration as there being both with offside reviews and goalie interference reviews, I get the feeling like the Connor McDavid disallowed goal against Calgary could be a tipping point of sorts. And because I think the vast majority of hockey fans, the vast majority of hockey players, the vast majority of NHL coaches, the vast majority of people who cover this game for a living would say that's a good goal and that it shouldn't have been disallowed. And the fact that we have an overtime game and a goal is scored and there's a team on the ice celebrating, it's it's like the Brett Hall toe in the crease thing all over again. And uh, so let's let's get into that deep dive on the, the McDavid disallowed goal. Actually, I've been calling it the McDavid disallowed goal. It's not the McDavid disallowed goal. It was the Ryan Strom disallowed goal. But it was McDavid, I'm sure you've seen it by now, broken off the wing and uh, – Made a little bit of contact as he drove the net um, with David Riddich's uh, stick slash blocker. And uh, loose puck at the side of the net. Strom put it in. And I think it's important, the first notation to make here is that referee Kendrick Nicholson signaled goal on the ice. In his mind, it was a goal. And the Edmonton Oilers piled off the bench. It was a fantastic overtime, by the way. One of the best games played in the National Hockey League this season. And the Oilers pile off the bench to celebrate the game-winning goal in overtime. Except by the time that referees Kendrick Nicholson and Steve Kazari go over to the, the penalty box, they find out that um, Hockey Ops in Toronto is on the phone 
to say that the goal needs to be reviewed. Now, a couple of things to point out here. Um, if it's in the final minute or two, I think it's the final minute of, uh, could be two minutes, but in any case, whether it's the last minute or two of the regulation time or overtime, basically all goals get reviewed to make sure that there's not something um, that, uh, that should have the, the goal uh, called back one way or the other. So anyways, all goals get reviewed um, by hockey ops. So this was not a case where the opposing team looked at it and said, ooh, coach's challenge, let's throw the flag and get a video review. This was hockey ops in Toronto looking at the game-winning goal and saying, hmm, there was a little bit of contact there. Uh, might this be goalie interference? So now, once they've determined that, it's almost as if Toronto hockey ops is now challenging the call of Kendrick Nicholson. So now Nicholson gets on the phone, and here's what's supposed to happen with the rule, as I understand it. The final authority, the final decision for this, gets made by the referee, in this case, Kendrick Nicholson. He made the call on the ice. He called it a goal. It's up to him. Using video and in consultation with the guys at Hockey Ops in Toronto if he wants to reverse himself. So now he's on the phone. I don't know what's going on on the phone, but I do know that obviously Nicholson's looking at views of the goal. You know, how many views is he getting? Is it slow motion? Um, what's he being told? What's he telling Toronto back? We don't really know in that, in that situation. But, um, Obviously, it's going on for quite some time. I think the, the official time on the, the review was up to three and a half minutes. That's a long time. And so now you're looking at multiple views, and you're probably looking at multiple views in slow motion. And, um, you know, is Toronto trying to convince Kendrick Nicholson that he needs to, to, to disallow the goal? Or are they just throwing that out there for him, and he's not sure, and so he keeps looking and looking and looking and trying to come up with an answer. Um, I guess the big problem here, as I see it, is we're looking for a quest for perfection. And because we have more technology, we, we continually rely on it as a crutch to get more technology. And, and I can only tell you this, that, that if... Kendrick Nicholson just wants to recheck his work and use video review in consultation with Toronto. I'd like to see this. I'd like to see, in that instance, Kendrick Nicholson say to Toronto, give me a couple of real-time looks at that goal. I want to see if I screwed something up. And look at it and, and just decide right then, within, within 60 seconds of having a couple of real-time looks at it, is that goalie interference? Did I miss, did, did I, did I miss an obvious one here? Or am I happy with the call as it stands? And if he's happy with the call as it stands, then skate back out there, point to center ice, and say, good goal. And if he wants to change it, change it. But this continually looking and looking and looking and more angles and slower angles and consultation with Toronto, I mean, we, we've got to... And, and this is where I understand when the coaches and the coaches poll, they said, we want more consistency. We want the same guys every night in the Situation Room in Toronto, making the decisions on these calls. We don't want the, the subjectivity and the vagary of going from referee to referee to referee who've all got different standards on what goalie interference is or isn't. We want one group of people, the guys in the Situation Room, to call it. Uh, I don't know. If, if the referee made the initial call, give him a chance to reverse himself 
Do it in 60 seconds, a couple of real-time looks, or let's move on. Because I, we're, th- this is going to be the death of us. This is going to be the death of our sport. I mean, you tell me what would have been a better outcome here. So it, it can go one of two ways. So McDavid drives the net, makes a little bit of contact with the goaltender, um, and, and Strom puts it in. Referee signals a goal. If there'd be no review from from Hockey Ops in Toronto, if they just let it go and said, oh, game-winning goal, maybe the Calgary Flames would have been upset. But let me ask you this. What would have, atten- what, what would have been the bigger travesty and what would have been the greater amount of controversy? The Calgary Flames after the game saying, hey, they didn't call goalie interference when McDavid made contact with Riddick or doing what we did which was taking a three-and-a-half-minute break and the referee, in consultation with Toronto, reversing himself. And the one curious thing I found when the, when the call was finally made and Kendrick Nicholson was out there, I think it was along the lines of his, his announcement in the PA to the, to, the, to the fans in the building and on television was after consultation with hockey ops in Toronto, it almost was like, don't blame me, I, I, I'm, I'm working with these other guys and, and they've convinced me of this or they decided, I don't know what it was, but I know that the referee is supposed to be the final authority. And, and maybe the, the quest to get it right needs to be replaced with the quest to get it done quickly and to put the game back in the hands of the referee. And if the referee screws it up, then so be it. That's hockey. That's the way it goes. But what we're dealing with now, these long delays and everybody not understanding what is or isn't goaltender interference, that's not hockey either. Now, I will say this in defense of both hockey operations and the officials and the officiating group with the National Hockey League. They do get it more right than wrong, even though we have all these controversies and we're endlessly talking about it. And to that point, as I understand it, there was a general manager's meeting in November in Montreal. Well, there was. At this meeting, as I understand it, what Hockey Ops and the officiating group did was they took the 10 most controversial, I think they were offside and goalie inter- interference reviews, coaches' challenges, and they played them for the 31 GMs. And after each one, they would get the GMs to vote on whether it's a good goal or whether it's a bad goal. Um, and should point out, of course, when you get 31 guys in a room, you're not going to get unanimity by any stretch. But you are able to get a simple majority. In, in, especially in a 31-team league, there has to be. The, the, the tightest it can be is 16-15. But at the end of the day, if there's 16 guys that think this is a good goal and there's 15 who think it's a bad goal, well, then those general managers, the consensus of that group is that it's a good goal. Okay, So they're doing these 10 instances. So they go through it, and in each of the 10 instances, the way that the, the NHL hockey ops and or the referees on the ice actually made the call, lined up perfectly with the simple majority of general managers on each of those. So to that point in time, the general managers thought, hey, hockey ops and officiating are doing a good job. Even though they don't satisfy every one of the 31 GMs, they satisfied the majority of them on all the calls. And as I say, you're never going to get everybody to agree on everything. But boy, oh boy. Um, the, the ones that do go south, they go south in a hurry, and uh, there's a lot of controversy associated with it. 
But here's where the disconnect is. If hockey ops and the officials and the general managers believe for the most part the system, the goalie review, and the offside challenge reviews are generally working quite well, there's a huge disconnect between what the players are feeling right now, what the coaches are feeling right now, what the fans and the media who cover this game for a living. And, and that's got to be addressed. And, and you can't just say, well, we're right, and if everybody else doesn't understand it. And, and, and there are instances where that's true. There are times when hockey ops and the officials are right, and we're all wrong because we don't understand the rule as it's, as it's constructed and, and the specifics of it. But at the end of the day, the old perception is reality. If the fans and the media and the players and the coaches think that this is a half-baked situation where they're making it up as they go along, even if they're not making it up as they go along, then they might as well be making it up. So this McDavid-Strom situation, it's the tipping point. And I think the NHL needs to take a hard, hard look at the whole thing of video and this ridiculous, absolute quest for perfection. And to get it right, to get it right, to get it right, so emphatically, is to ultimately get it wrong because it's not the way the game was meant to be watched or played. Alrighty then, I've put the soapbox away. Let's get to some questions here. The first question comes from Dave S. And he says, Bob, every hockey game I watch, there is goalie interference or significant contact in which the goalie has no chance to make a save. Why is the league not consistent in enforcing the rule? Dave S. Oh, we've already done that. We've talked about that, Dave. I'm sorry, but no more goalie interference talk. Let's move on to the draft. Let's... uh, as I said earlier, uh, go to tsn.ca. Uh, the full half-hour draft ranking show is up there now, a non-geolock version. Anywhere in the world you can see it. Uh, there's also a story that I wrote, and uh, we got like 85, 90, 93 names up there for our uh, midterm rankings, so you can jump all over those. Uh, here's the uh, first question, and this is draft-related. This will be from Will S., um, Hi, Bob. Firstly, I'd just like to say I'm a fan of all your work. Well, thank you very much. Your insights to the game and inside track on the latest news have been the best of any for years. Well, thank you very much. Uh, This year's entry draft is a pretty strong one, and with multiple Canadian teams looking like they're going to be picking inside the top 10, this draft will be even more exciting, hopefully, for fans north of the border. So my question is this. For the Canadian teams that will likely have a high pick, i.e. Vancouver, Edmonton, Ottawa, and my favorite team, the Montreal Canadiens, which top 10 level players do you think they should aim towards drafting? Sincerely, Will S. Well, as anybody knows uh, at all following anything from this draft, uh, we've now officially dubbed it the Rasmus Dahlin draft. And the the reason for that is very simple. Um, He's by far the best prospect in the draft. There's no competition for number one here. Um, We thought there might be at the beginning of the season. When I did the preseason survey of scouts that I do for our rankings, uh, talked to 10 scouts, nine had Rasmus Dahlin, the big Swedish defenseman, at number one. One had Andrei Sveshnikov, the Russian winger who plays for the Barry Colts, excuse me, at number one. And there was a thought that Sveshnikov was big enough, fast enough, strong enough, skilled enough that he might yet challenge 
Darlene for number one overall. Well, here we are in uh, in late January, and that is not the case. Rasmus Dahlin is just so good, um, too good. You know, six foot two going on six foot three, um, hundred and eighty one pounds, and he's only going to get stronger. He is offensively dynamic. Uh, he is defensively dominant. Um, he does things with the puck that remind you of Eric Carlson. Uh, he does things without the puck that remind you of Victor Hedman. Um, there are times when he's defending one-on-one, stick-on-stick, um, that you know he, he, he does it with such great ease and dexterity and plays such a heady game um, that you'd, you'd swear that there's a little Nick Lidstrom uh, running through his blood. Now, you got to be crazy to saddle some poor 18-year-old kid, even if he is a six foot two, 180-pound stud defenseman, with comparisons to Eric Carlson, Nick Lidstrom, and, and Victor Hedman. And yet there are aspects of his game that are very similar to each and every one of those guys. Now, I don't know how good he's going to be in the National Hockey League. I don't know that he could ever approach the level that a Hall of Famer like Nick Lidstrom got to. But what I do know is from talking to the scouts is that this guy's going to be a number one defenseman in the National Hockey League, and there's nobody else in this draft who's close to him. It's Rasmus Dahlin, and it's everybody else. So that, that's first and foremost. So those teams that uh, Will talked about, um, his Montreal Canadiens, the Vancouver Canucks, the Edmonton Oilers, and the Ottawa Senators. So in answer to your question, um, which top 10, top 10 level player do you think they should aim towards drafting? Rasmus Dahlin is the answer. Could you imagine Vancouver with their uh, scarcity of, of young depth on the blue line if they got Rasmus Dahlin? Could you imagine what it would mean to an Edmonton Oilers franchise? My goodness, the whole world will go nuts if the Edmonton Oilers win the lottery. And Connor McDavid is joined by Rasmus Dahlin on the Edmonton Blue Line. Are you kidding me? Um, the way the things have gone with the Ottawa Senators, um, they're going to have a real good lottery pick. Um, things seem to be falling apart at the seams for the Sens now. But uh, especially with all the questions about the long-term future of Eric Carlson in Ottawa, how good would it be for the Ottawa Senators to be able to put Dahlin in their lineup next season? And as for the Canadians, I mean, they've got Shea Weber, but who, who doesn't need a, a guy like Dahlin on their blue line? So there's the short answer to which player they should be aiming towards drafting. But obviously, only one team gets to pick at number one. So... Let's um, let's talk about what I call the next layer of guys. I mentioned Svechnikov, the Russian. He's still number two on our list. But instead of challenging Dahlin for number one, Svechnikov finds himself in a situation where he's having to fend off a challenge himself um, with a couple of other outstanding goal-scoring wingers. Now, on Svechnikov, a couple of things to point out. He's six foot two, 100, almost 190 pounds. He's an elite level skater, one of the very best skaters in the entire draft. Um, he's been in North America now for a few years, played in the USHL. Now he's in the OHL. Um, he's well acclimatized to the smaller North American ice. Uh, he's well acclimatized to North American culture. Um, his, his brother, Evgeny's in the Detroit Red Wing organization. Any of the, the, the so-called Russian factors that you want to apply against a guy, they should be minimal in, in this situation. And he's got 19 goals in 24 games 
with the Colts. Um, he, he was out of the lineup with what's called boxer's knuckle. Uh, had a little surgery on his hand when his knuckle blew up in a fall earlier this season. But um, he uh, he's going to be an elite number one uh, scoring winger in the National Hockey League. There's no doubt about that. But so is Philip Zadina, our number three player on the TSN list. Halifax Mooseheads, again, sixth consecutive first round, top top ten pick. They've had Nathan McKinnon, Jonathan Druin, Nikolai Ehlers. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Halifax has, has tremendous talent coming through that pipeline. Zadina's got 27 goals in 38 games. He's just six feet, but he's 195 pounds, so you can see that he's got a bit of a wide body. Tremendous skater. Um, best shot in the draft. Best natural goal scorer. Um, probably even better than Svechnikov. And you saw him at the World Junior Championship. He was electrifying for the Czech Republic, scoring from everywhere, an unbelievable shot. And again, it was on display, and, and, and he and Svechnikov went head-to-head last night in the CHL Prospects game, and uh, Zadina was, uh, was, was the better of the two. He won that battle. Um, and, and scouts are split on, on whether Zadina or Svechnikov will be the better guy, but they want to see the rest of the season and, and how it plays out. So it, it, it's fascinating. That's a fascinating battle, but it's not just Svechnikov and Zadina. There's Brady Kachuk. Now here's a six foot three, almost 200 pound power forward that's got some really silky soft mitts on him. Saw that at the World Junior Championship, the goals he scored in the shootout, the breakaways. Um, you know, he's only got five goals in 24 games at Boston University, but he got off to a really, really slow start offensively there. I don't think there's anybody who doubts that this guy's going to be a top-line winger in the National Hockey League who can not only put the puck in the net, but will also play a real strong power game, much more so than Svechnikov and Zadina, even though they get their nose dirty and they're strong going to the net. Brady Kachuk is a guy that's going to rub people out. He's going to rub people the wrong way. He's an agitator. Um, and, and... Beyond Darlene, there's this layer of these three goal-scoring wingers who are all in the conversation for 2-3-4. And depending on the team you talk to, they'll have them in, in completely different orders. But uh, that group of three, to my way of thinking, at this point, and there's still lots of hockey to be played, but to this point of the season, they're in that, that little strata right beyond Darlene, but ahead of everybody else in this draft class. Another draft question, this one from Oscar Elieff. He says, hi, Bob. Now that the World Juniors are over, and with the tournament that both Philip Zadina and Brady Kachuk had, do you expect this to affect Adam Boquist's position in the draft? With the depth of Sweden's decor at the World Junior Championship, it was no surprise that Boquist didn't make the World Junior team despite his skill. But because Zadina and Kachuk were able to showcase theirs at the World Junior, does this mean that he could fall by omission to fifth or even outside of the top five? Well, a great question from Oscar uh, on Adam Boquist. Now, Adam Boquist is our number five ranked player on our TSN midterm rankings. Now, for those that don't know him, Adam Boquist is a 5'11", 168-pound defenseman who plays with Brinus in Sweden. Now, he's undersized, obviously under 6 feet, not quite 170 pounds, 
But the scouting report on Bolquist is that he's a dynamic offensive presence, huge amount of wow factor in his game, um, works diligently to try and be good defensively, but his offense is way ahead of his defense, and obviously his physical stature lends itself more as a great skater to the offensive elements of the game. As I mentioned before uh, Oscar's question, and talking about the layers or the strata of this draft, with Darlene at number one, separation, Svechnikov, Zadina, and Kachuk, Kachuk in that next level, separation. The separation between those three goal-scoring wingers and the next four rated players on our list, who happen to be all defensemen, is not as wide as the Atlantic Ocean. It's not as wide as it is between number one and two, three, and four. So I would say this about Boquist. Um, he's most certainly, in my mind, at this point in time, subject, obviously, to his play the rest of the year and the, the, the usual moving up or down of prospects, he, he's a top-five National Hockey League talent. And it's not inconceivable that he could displace one of the goal-scoring wingers in the 2-3-4 slot. But as of right now, based on our interviews and surveys with the scouts, um, he's clearly a consensus number five. And I should probably mention the other defensemen that, uh, that fall into that, that same lair um, because they are, as much as Boquist might push Svechnikov, Zadina, and Kachuk for a top-four spot, We've got three defensemen directly behind um, Boquist who could displace Boquist uh, in, in the top five. And, and that list and that group includes the number six-ranked player, and that would be Quinn Hughes, the American, who's a freshman at the University of Michigan. And, and like, uh, like Boquist, you know, he's an undersized guy. His, his stats, 5'10", 170 pounds. He's got one goal and 14 points in 21 games with the Wolverines in the NCAA. And he is very much a one-dimensional offensive guy, so much so that I, I would say he's not just an offensive defenseman, he's more a rover than he is a defenseman at this point. And there are certainly questions about his physical stature, and there are questions about his play without the puck, but his gifts on the offensive side and to be able to skate the puck up the ice. And I think some of the scouts I talked to said, don't call him a puck mover, call him a puck carrier because he loves to carry the puck even more than he likes to move it. But in any case, his, his gifts are so great that he slots in um, at number six and, and a real strong number six on our list. Um, should point out that of, of the 10 scouts that we surveyed on Quinn Hughes, Five of them ranked him number six in this draft, and five of them ranked him number seven. Outside of Darlene, there's not another player whose who's bandwidth, that is the, the difference between his top ranking and his bottom ranking, is so tight. Number five or number six on 10 scouts lists. So um, he, he's a consideration to get in the top five. And I would say there's a bit of another subtle level change here. That is, I would put Boquist and Hughes in a, in a little bit of a separate category from the next two defensemen, but only to a very small degree. Just a little bit of a gap between 5'6 and 7'8. And 
If you've noticed one thing so far about me talking about the draft, we haven't mentioned one single Canadian. Not one. We're at number seven prospect on the TSN midterm rankings, and there's not been a single Canadian mentioned yet. And I'll be honest with you, it may well be that no Canadian gets drafted this year in the top five of the draft. And if that happens, it's, it'll, it'll be the first time that it's, it's happened, a, a Canadian not going in the top five, since 1999. And in fact, it would only be the second time in the 50-year modern-day history of the NHL entry draft that Canada didn't have a top-five selection in a draft year. So that's that's unbelievable. Anyways, um, number seven guy is Evan Bouchard, a defenseman with the London Knights. He's a big defenseman, six foot two, 193 pounds. So he's got some size to him. He's not a, a doesn't wow you with his blinding speed. He's a, he's a good skater, but um, uh, kind of a calm, methodical approach to the game. But I'll tell you what he is. He's an elite passer. He passes the puck as well as anybody I've seen, um, tape to tape. Always finds the open guy, um, and and as such, he puts up really nice offensive numbers. Now, maybe his numbers in the second half of the season will drop a little bit in London because Robert Thomas was traded, Cliff Poo's been traded, Max Jones has been traded. A lot of the good offensive players forwards for the Knights um, were uh, were traded as part of a a, a bit of a reload for uh, Dale Hunter's team. Uh, but he's got fifty four points in forty five games, and fifteen of those fifty four points. Uh, were goals, and the reason why his goal total is as high as it is, in addition to being an elite passer of the puck, uh, he can also hammer a puck from the blue line. Really dangerous weapon for um, Evan Bouchard. And uh, as I say, when he doesn't have the puck, um, he's calm, cool, collected. Um, You know, some might say there's a lackadaisical element to his game when he doesn't have the puck, but boy, oh boy, he's a real heady hockey player who... uh, who, who gets the puck to the person on the ice that's supposed to get the puck. He finds the open man, whether it's a short pass for an outlet or whether it's a stretch pass tape to tape, um, elite passer. And uh, he's a guy that uh, is very much steadily on the rise here and, and could be a threat to both Boquist and Hughes um, to move up as uh, the top defenseman in the draft next to Rasmus Dahlin, of course. A uh, similar situation with the number eight guy, another Canadian defenseman, Noah Dobson, who plays for the Acadie Bathurst Titan. Um, he uh, he's a big guy, six foot three, hundred and eighty pounds. Obviously, hasn't filled out yet, but uh, he's a real rising star in the draft rankings. Uh, he's put up real nice numbers in the Quebec League: ten goals, forty-seven points, point a game player uh, after forty-six games. And uh, he's really got a solid all-around game. Uh, he can play it physical. He can play it fast. Uh, he's good with the puck. Uh, he'll score you goals. He'll make plays. He'll break up plays. Um, he, as I say, he can provide, uh, bring, bring some physical heat. Um, and he just continues to rise up the ranks. Um, so he and Bouchard are two guys that are trending in, in the right direction north to uh, compete with Boquist and Hughes for those top defense spots behind Darlene. Our number nine pick is Oliver Wallstrom. Uh, go to YouTube, type in Oliver Wallstrom, and you're going to find this 9-, 10-year-old kid who was a sensation at a Boston Bruin intermission years ago. 
did the fancy pick up the puck, swing it around, and uh, shootout move. And uh, Oliver Wallstrom, uh, the kids all growed up now, as they like to say. He's a, he's a big man, six foot one, two hundred and five pounds. He is he's he's got size, he's got strength, he's really fast, he's got really high level offensive skill, um, tremendous shooter, twenty six goals in thirty four games for the U.S. under eighteen team. And uh, the only thing that's missing from his game right now is consistency. He's uh, uh, he's an in and outer. Uh, when he's on his game, um, he's he looks like he's a almost almost NHL ready top six winger. Um, but sometimes he disappears and that's not unusual for for eighteen year olds in a in a draft year. Um but uh he's he's definitely uh a, a top a, a real strong consensus top ten guy. Uh, rounding out our top ten on the T S N list is Ty Smith. Um an undersized defenseman who plays for the Spokane Chiefs. He's a Canadian Five foot ten, one hundred and seventy five pounds. He's put up some nice numbers in uh, in Spokane. Six goals and forty four points in forty six games. But here is the thing with with Smith. Um, he's really really smart. He's a really cerebral yet undersized. As I said, five ten, one seventy five defenseman. He he nearly always makes the right play, the right read. Whether he's got the puck, whether he doesn't have the puck. Um, he's, he's just famous for doing the right thing, making the right play. Now, unfortunately for him, um, that didn't extend to the CHL prospect game Thursday night in Guelph, um, where he was minus four. Now, it wasn't all his fault, but he did not have a good game. And one of the talking points when the scouts came away from that game was, if, if Ty Smith isn't big or strong, which he's not, if he's not overly fast, which he's not, um, if if he's not a dynamic offensive presence, which he's not, if he's not a punishing physical defender, which he's not, then what exactly is he? Well, he's he's obviously good enough to make our top 10, um, but this is also a player that is going to be under a lot of scrutiny to try and maintain his position as the, uh, as the season wears on. One final draft question here. Hi, Bob. I'm Justin from Nova Scotia, a big Montreal fan. If we assume that the Habs draft somewhere in the back half of the top 10, do any of the likely available top centers, Rasmus Kaperi, Barrett Hayton, Joe Valeno, pass the eye test as a potential number one, or are the Habs better off in going in a different direction? This is a fantastic question because it highlights another really quirky thing. We talk about no Canadians being in the top six of our rankings. Um, How about this? Um, we're 10 deep on our rankings and there's not a single center of any nationality that's being listed. Not one single center. This is a defenseman, winger, top-heavy draft. Fantastic defensemen available, fantastic wingers available, and virtually no elite projected elite number one NHL centers, at least based on the scouts' rankings so far. Um, should point out that um, just to round out our uh, our, our, our TSN list, that uh, Guelph Storm defenseman Ryan Merkley is number eleven, um, and then the first center appears at number twelve, and that would be Barrett Hayton of the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. Barrett Hayton's got a real good shot, um, and he's a really industrious, hardworking, responsible, two-way type center, and. 
to the question from, uh, wait a second, I lost this question. There we go. Justin in Nova Scotia asking on behalf of the Montreal Canadiens, are any of these guys a number one center? Hayton would not be projected as a, a number one NHL center. Um, for the, the scouts that like him, and there are those that have him in their top 10, they would suggest that he's got all the tools to potentially be a number two center in the National Hockey League. Um, for those that have him outside the top 10 and those that do don't have him too far outside the top 10, um, I don't think many guys have him rated lower than in, in top 15. Um, they would say that at worst, Hayton would be that really responsible um, number three center in the National Hockey League. So call him a, a 2B or a, a 3A type uh, center that uh, sort of in tweener between a second line, a, a true second line offensive center and uh, a, a third line shutdown or, or defensive minded center. He's got the ability to play a good two way game. Um, Rasmus Kapari from Finland is number 13. He's also a center. He's got speed. He's got skill. He's got some size. Um, uh, and it would be another consideration for a team looking for a center. But again, probably more along the lines of closer to a third-line center in the NHL. And there are those who suggest that he he may even be a better winger in the National Hockey League than a center. Uh, our number 14 pick is Bodie Wild, a really physically mature, um, strong skating uh, member of the U.S. Under-18 program. And number 15 is Joe Valeno. And we should talk a little bit about Joe Valeno. Um for a variety of reasons. Number one, he started the season, the preseason, our preseason rankings, as number five, and he now sits at number 15. Valeno plays a real strong two-way game, um, but he doesn't have sort of the dynamic wow factor that you would associate with a, a true number one or a higher-end number two center in the National Hockey League. And and like Barrett Hayton, he, he might be a guy who on his best day might be that lowercase second-line center in the NHL, but could conceivably be a third-line guy. Now, what Joe Valeno has going for him, which is to suggest what he doesn't have going for him, is that he carries the burden of having been named an official, quote-unquote, exceptional player by Hockey Canada. When Joe Valeno was a physically mature 15-year-old, um, he applied to Hockey Canada for exceptional status, and it was granted. And he he was full value for playing in, in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League as a 15-year-old, did not look out of place. So to that extent, he, he was exceptional. But in the very literal sense of what an exceptional player is, not the absolute um, definition of exceptional for purposes of Hockey Canada and getting to junior hockey a year before you're scheduled to, Joe Valeno is not exceptional in this draft. Joe Valeno is a first-round pick all day long, as Mike Babcock would say. Um, as I said, strong two-way player, great character, was the captain of, of uh, captain and leading scorer, if I remember correctly, of Canada's under-18 team at the Ivan Holinka tournament. Um, but uh, but Joe Valeno is not exceptional. Rasmus Dahlin's exceptional. Joe Valeno is not. And it'll be interesting to see whether he can hold his status um, as, a, as, as a guy that's right now sort of cast in the middle of the first round. There are some scouts that have him lower than that. Um, but there's also a scout, one of our 10 scouts, 
Still had him at number five overall on his list um, for our midterm uh, rankings. But in terms of the consensus, we've got him smack dab in the middle of the first round. So now if you're the Montreal Canadiens or any team that needs a center, but Montreal really needs a center, this is not necessarily a good year um, to pick positionally for a center. So if you're the Montreal Canadiens and you're picking in the top five or six, unless Hayton or Kapari or Valeno take a major step between now and the end of the season, I think most National Hockey League scouts would tell you you don't force it positionally. You take the best player available. And, uh, and that. Now, if you get down um, to the back half of the top ten, then absolutely guys like Hayton and Kapari and perhaps Valeno um, – our candidates to be in the top 10 and it wouldn't be an unreasonable pick at all if Hayton continues to play as well as he have as well as he has for a team to look at him as as somebody you would take at six or seven or eight or nine but you do have a lot of competition from a lot of really good defensemen and a lot of really good scoring wingers Okay, that ends the question and answer portion of this week's Bobcast but I do need to remind you, that the Bobcast this week is brought to you by Budweiser's limited edition Gold Sink Lights. Get yours now at Budweiser.ca and bring it home. Must be legal drinking age. How was the read? Work for you? Work for me. Don't need Rod Smith or Rod Smith, baby. I uh, do want to wrap things up here with a little bit of listener feedback, but also um, some really uh, important words for me about uh, some people who left us over the course of this past week. So first, the listener feedback. Greetings, Mr. McKenzie. My name is Seamus McDonald, and I'm from Mississauga, Ontario. I'd just like to offer you my gratitude for all the work you do. The Bobcast has been such a pleasure to listen to, and it has hit very close to home on many occasions. As a cancer survivor, I appreciate all the work you've done to promote cancer awareness, as well as general health awareness for men as we typically let things get much worse than we should before seeing a doctor. As a huge fan of the Tragically Hip, I'd like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for the beautiful tribute episode you did for Gord Downey. I don't want to take too much of your time, so I'll end with this thought I had a while back. I think the reason so many people love your work is you embody the same spirit that the Tragically Hip did. What I mean is, you speak and write with a subtle elegance that is able to reach both common man like myself and the scholar. You're one of the boys, you're able to broach the most sensitive subjects honestly and with grace. So thank you, Bob. Your work is an inspiration, and I hope that you would consider keeping the Bobcast going well into your retirement, even if it's just a few episodes here and there. Also, I know it's late, but I'd like to offer my condolences for the loss of your good friend, Stu. To quote Gord, heaven is a better place today because of this, but the world is just not the same. Thanks, Bob. All the best in the future. Seamus McDonald. Well, first off, Seamus, um, thank you very, very much from the bottom of my heart for such kind words. I don't know that I could speak very scholarly. Um, I do feel like I'm one of the boys, um, and I just try to be honest and, uh, and what have you. But um, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, it, it's been a really difficult couple of weeks um, on that front of, uh, of, of losing great people in the game. Um, This past Wednesday, I was not able to get to Montreal for the the funeral services 
for Red Fisher, um, the legendary uh, Montreal hockey writer who, uh, who died last week at age 91. Um, Red was an unbelievable character. And for anybody of my generation in the hockey writing business or younger, um, Red was the gold standard. Um, you know, I mean, he, uh, what he, he, he come, he came to work. What was his, they said his first day on the job was the Richard riot, something like that. But, um, he, he really was the, the pinnacle of our profession as hockey writers. Um, nobody could write a game story like Red Fisher. Um, he, he, he could write a story with no quotes, um, about a game that you saw and you would still learn something and you were intrigued and, and it felt like an adventure. And yet he was also fantastic with human interest pieces and, and the personal touch, um, won national newspaper awards. Um, but maybe beyond all of that, I mean, such a character. Um, he was a cantankerous son of a bitch too. And, and sometimes he would put that on because he expect because he knew people expected him to be that way. He would play the good-natured curmudgeon a lot of the time. But there were also times when, when, he, had a, when he had a mood on, uh, you, he was not to be trifled with. Um, he was just so legendary on, on so many fronts. He, the stuff, he wouldn't talk to rookies in their first year with the, um, with the Montreal Canadiens. And, and we could go on and on, but um, I got to know Red and considered him a friend and uh, was honored, you know, that he knew the hell, who the hell I was and on a number of occasions had some kind words for me. Also had some unkind words for me a few times too. I remember when I was editor-in-chief of the Hockey News, I, I said, Red, I, you don't write for the Hockey News. I'd really like to uh, try and get you to write for the Hockey News. You don't have enough money to hire me. And... Um, he was famous at the old Montreal Forum press room. We call it media lounges now, I guess. But back then, we just called it the press room. Um, they had a bottle of Chivas. He drank scotch. A bottle of Chivas behind the counter. And uh, I didn't drink scotch, but on rare occasions when I was invited to by Red, um, I knew where my bread was buttered and sit down. And he was a lot of fun to be around. And um, he was just a, a good guy and, and a great writer and Michael Farber and Dave Stubbs, um, two guys that worked with Red at the Montreal Gazette, and now uh, Michael's semi-retired, um, still does some stuff from SI from time to time, I think. But um, And Dave Stubbs is now working for um, NHL.com. They did a fantastic job eulogizing um, Red in, in print and photos and everything in, in the wake of Red's passing. So to um, Red's family and friends, deepest condolences. Um, he was the best, and uh, as I said, he was the gold standard. But, I mean, you know what? It, it It's easy to celebrate the life of a Red Fisher, or Rouge as we called him, because he died at age 91. And um, and it's 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 never not sad when somebody passes away. But, wow, 91 years old. Um, we should all be so lucky um, to make it that long. Which brings me to the, 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 the second passing of note. And, and this one hits hard, and it hurts hard. And um, last Sunday, I was up at the cottage doing draft um, surveys with scouts and 
working away on the, uh, the, the draft rankings, and I saw on Twitter that Jim Johansson, who heads up USA Hockey's, um, the equivalent of Hockey Canada's program of excellence, um, but uh, heads up the international division for USA Hockey, had passed away in his sleep last Saturday night, age 53. Um, Jimmy Johansson was a very good friend of mine, and he was very good to me. And I just most recently seen him on multiple occasions, obviously, at the World Junior Championship in Buffalo. And you could not meet a, a better man. Um, and, and, and so helpful to everybody. And really, the, the face of USA Hockey internationally and, and the huge outpouring we've seen over the past week here now, his, his funeral in wake was Wednesday and Thursday in Colorado Springs. And, and because of uh, my work commitments, same as Red's funeral in Montreal, I wasn't able to get there. So I, I obviously want to pay tribute now. So first and foremost, deepest condolences to JJ's um, family and his many friends and as I said, if, if you saw the outpouring of emotion, any player, uh, any American hockey player who's played in the World Junior Championship, the Olympics, um, the, the World Championships, um, they know what Jimmy Johansson was all about. He was, he was their face of international hockey. He put their teams together, did a fantastic job. Um, quite aside from the, the huge sense of loss we just feel on a personal level, I'm not sure how USA Hockey replaces a guy like Jimmy Johansson because he had he had so much going on on, on so many different levels and like a lot of us worked way 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 too hard um, and and it was just a pleasure to get to know Jimmy all these years especially at the World Junior Championship where we always spent a lot of time together so as I say um, from last Sunday. Um, uh, and the passing of Jimmy that took me so much by surprise. It just, it's just heartbreaking to lose a friend like that. And, and to Seamus's point, I mean, and I've talked about this, and I'm not going I'm, I'm to get any more modeling than I've already gotten because um, we, we do want to celebrate life and we want to enjoy today for what it is. Um, but I've had so, so many friends, good friends, um, who in the last four or five years have passed away in their 50s. You can think of my friend Tony Birdie, Rich Rank, Stu Seedhouse, Gord Downey, and now Jimmy Johansson. And as I said, um, when a guy like Red Fisher leaves this world at age 91, it's sad, but it, it, it's cause for a huge celebration of, of what an amazing life lived by Rouge and, and all these other friends of mine and, and colleagues that have passed away in their 50s. Their life is obviously no less worthy of celebration, but God damn it, it's, it's so hard to celebrate when, when they're so young. So anyways, um, as I say, I don't want to bring anybody down for the weekend. Um, and in fact, should be trying to be uplifting and just reinforces uh, the, the passing of JJ um, and others well before their time to, um, to enjoy this day, um, to take it and live it for all it's worth. And uh, as I said, um, I've been working way too hard this week and it's time to go see uh, my son Mike and his Kitchener Rangers and my baby, my grand, uh, granddaughter, baby Blake. And uh, 
call it a week and, uh, and enjoy the all-star break. So have a great one, everyone. Uh, take care, stay safe, um, and uh, live the hell out of this day and everyone that you're around for. All the best. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's At TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the At TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend.